Hi, this is Robert Gowan. You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. And if you're not on Mixler, that's MIXLR.com. Jump on with us so that you can go ahead and chat in the uh, live page with us. Uh, Scott Kinder, uh, Mike Pritz, and Susan Dayot is on with me. And we're going to be talking about Pride and Prejudice. So, uh, Scott, why don't you go ahead and tee it up for us and uh, give us kind of an idea of what tonight's In the Strategy topic is. Well, Thanks, Robert. We've kind of been dancing all around it, you know, in, in lots of previous shows, the, the loss in translation, the adaptability, networking, building, you know, your skill sets and everything else. But we, we've hit on, you know, especially when Mike and I are on the show together, quite often we hit on, you know, get over yourself, become more self-aware, check your ego at the door and all those kind of terms. So post-show last week or, or Sunday night, Susan, you and I decided that Pride and Prejudice would be a good topic for the show because we're all very proud of who we are, what we've done, and the accomplishments that we've you know gained along the way. So, so I thought that it would be a great show because not only are we proud, but civilians are also proud of who they are and what they've done, and there's prejudice alive and well on both sides of the coin. So I thought we could tee it up, you know, and, and do kind of a Jane Austen-like show and say Pride and Prejudice, but how exactly that impacts your transition or career moves or anything else so i'll quit talking for a second and open it up in the chat room and elsewhere yeah i think that this is a really good uh, topic because uh, we kind of hit on it like you had mentioned last week in the tail end of it where we were talking about the differences and how the private sector views uh, the military um, coming off active duty and such and how in many cases um, you know, when we're in the military, we have somewhat of a prejudice uh, that we have towards the private sector, and yet we're going to become one of those whenever we separate, whether it's uh, during an enlistment period or retirement. Um, and of course, um, you know, when we get into pride and prejudice, it starts going across, um, you know, military branches. It can go across, um, you know, pride within the military branches themselves. And so I, we thought it might be a really good topic to kind of hit on. Uh, because as you start to make the transition and certainly go into the private sector, you kind of need to understand the challenges that you're getting into. Well, I mean, exactly right. I mean, you know, it's no army guy ever says, you know, I'm, you know, I was an army guy or I was in the army or whatever. I served how many years, but Marines are a great example, right? Like once a Marine, always a Marine. So Susan on the show could, could you know, testify to that better than I. Um, I'm just a former civilian Marine, I guess, but um, is the general called me. But, you know, so it's things that you've done, anything hard that you've accomplished, you know, awards and certificates. And I'll bring it up now because I think Mike's expecting me to see how long it takes me. But drive around any military installation, you'll see just the, the sheer number of cars with their, you know, enlisted record brief or their 201 file or whatever we call it displayed all over the back windshield of their car, right? All the combat infantry badges and the no joke there I was, you know, stickers and, and everything else. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you pull up into a civilian organization's parking lot and that's all over your jacked up F-250 dually truck, you know, and it's all over there, you're already setting yourself up at a potential disadvantage before you even walk in the door. Ryan, I think he saw your truck, man. I think. <laughs> yeah, there, there are a lot of... Uh... There are definitely a lot of stereotypes that start going into that. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with placing stickers or anything on it. But, again, you're trying to um, – whenever you try to integrate, you, you certainly want to um, make sure that you're not um, – you're putting the best foot forward. And, um, you know, we talked about that in terms of building your personal brand, in terms of your resume. Um, I wrote an article about that, as a matter of fact, this week um, or a blog uh, that I put out there on the Mentors for Military website – uh, because I felt like, you know, we, although we talked about it within the podcast, I wanted to make sure I hung something out there that people could kind of 
read and understand that the personal brand aspect of this is so critical um, because it's okay to have pride in uh, what we have done and what we've accomplished and such, but um, you've got to be able to temper that in a way because, again, um, y- you just don't want to be us and them uh, type of mentality. Well, there's a, there's a clear difference in pride and, and being proud of who you are, what you've done, where you've been, the things you've seen or, or whatever, and image projection, right, which is, you know – going into who you are and what image you're trying to project. So if you're trying to say, I'm a retiring soldier, Marine, Coast Guard, Air Forceman, whatever, sailor, and I want to be an executive, well, there's an image that has to go along with that executive presence that you, you want at that new company, right? So, so so to me, there's a very clear difference in pride and image projection, but sometimes we, we don't realize that difference and we mistakenly show the wrong image and we project the wrong presence when applying for jobs and transitioning and it really truly does a disservice and, and i have nothing against the 201 file in the back of the car i mean i was just showing mike in the pre-show that my my, my shipment from the states finally got here and my pineland university you know sticker was was in one of my boxes and i love it right nobody in australia is going to know what the hell pineland university is but we all have things that we're very proud of but they don't need to you know be demonstrated on a vehicle per se you know, um, one of the things I found in doing some research on this topic, uh, I wanted to go out there and look at some of the Department of Labor statistics, and, and it was very interesting to me when I started looking at the number of um, you know veterans that there are out there. I think there's something like 22 million plus or so, um, but what's interesting is that 50% of those veterans are actually served in the World War II, Korean, and Vietnam era, and then 23% uh, was actually from the Gulf War moving forward. So that means that there's another 27% that are in another period. My point of this is, is that 75% of the veterans that are out there that are within the workforce are a very large number, and they've already integrated, um, and they're looking for you when you come to them. You may not even know that they were a veteran or anything, and they're also looking for you to display the right image of what they perceive to be the the culture of the private sector um, that they've been already, you know, a part of for some period of time. Um, so it's, again, it's not that you're um, taking off your pride sleeve or anything of that nature. You're not taking off the, you know, hey, I was an OIF or OEF veteran and everything. We're not saying that. It's just that you've got to understand there's a, there's a place in time. And what we're trying to do is uh, tonight talk about how some of those things can kind of be tempered to your advantage uh, to give you uh, to where you're not standing out uh, too much. When I first started my job where I'm at now, I've been there going on nine years. The first couple of years we were growing. We had won some contracts and started hiring people at the rapid rate. And I kept being asked, um, have you ever been in a leadership position? And my response always was, well, yeah, I spent 22 years in the Marine Corps. And then I wouldn't elaborate, I would just stop. And they would just look at me because they couldn't understand what it was I was trying to say. I have since had to um, stop using that line and learn to describe the different leadership positions that I was in. They don't understand what 22 years in the Marine Corps really means in terms of leadership. And that was how I was coming across wrong to people. Yeah, you know, when you think about a lot of the people within the private sector, uh, many of them never, you know, they, they don't achieve a leadership role um you know leadership being different if we actually quantify different than management so management and leadership so they don't achieve a leadership role sometimes until you know might be 12 15 18 years themselves in the private sector after in 
college in most cases. So, um, you know, that's about the same age group or whatever that we're coming off active duty if you were an enlisted individual, certainly. Um, and maybe about the same time period even for um, officers that are coming off if you get out of the 20-year mark. Um, but the difference is, is that many of us may have um, actually been managers as early as our first 24 months. So that's a big difference in what the private sector where you may not reach a management position until maybe six to 10 years. So you've got that leg up and you've got that as an advantage, um, but they're not going to understand just because you have that military experience and you state that automatically it gives you the um, the, the point on your resume that you were a manager or the experience level. They, do, they don't know how to equate that. You know, that it maybe 16 months or 18 months, you were given management responsibilities right off the bat. Maybe several million dollars worth of equipment. Maybe, you know, 10 guys that you were accountable for at that time period. And I think that goes along with the, the line of the show, though, Robert. You know, part of that's our pride is we're going to that first interview or we're going into to talk about what we've done, what we've accomplished. And, um, and we've, we've said this, I think, in every show that I've been on. you got to check that ego at the door and, and go in there with a little bit of humility and, uh, and, and describe exactly what you've, what you've accomplished. And, I, and it, it makes me think, as you were opening this whole thing up in the first couple of conversations, it makes me think of something an old team sergeant of mine told me is that you're, you're only as good as you were today. So it, it doesn't matter what you've accomplished over the last you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. Uh, the performance that you laid out on the line today – is, is how I'm evaluating you. And, and, and Matt had counseled on that when I was a younger guy. Uh, so, and by, by people who are very good friends of mine, you know, at the time and, and still. Uh, but I think that if you apply the same mentality towards, you know, what you're trying to do, what you're trying to go in and sell yourself as or become, uh, man, you're only as good as you are today. So you got to prepare for today and then, and figure out a way to achieve whatever that goal is. Well, when I I love it, and I couldn't agree more because when when I was a young program manager at DoD, right, and I was this GS federal civilian guy, I would have retired, you know, special forces, you know, of whatever Navy SEALs, Army guys, whoever come and work for me, who you know, twenty, thirty years in the field, and but they would come to me with this pride chip on their shoulder a lot of times, and just so I would always try and tell them, you know, look. If you think you're a big animal in the special activities world or in the soft world in general, and I'm not the x-ray trying to, you know, pontificate to you here, but if you think you're a big animal here, it's only because you're a dinosaur. Like, always be learning, always be adjusting, and learn the soft ethos that we all embrace. Be that guy that I respect and admire you for being, and quit acting like you, you know, do all and know all and have been everywhere in the world. Like, come on, have some humbleness to you. Some of the best managers and leaders, I mean, when you really start thinking about it, is not taking so much pride in all of your accomplishments, but actually recognizing that there was a lot of team that went into that. Um, and uh, Mike and I have talked many times about, um, you know, the ability of, of uh, and the the joy of watching others grow. Um, so, yeah, if, if you really do that self-assessment that we've talked about in previous podcasts, well, then you shouldn't be really thumping your chest out there that much in the first place. Um, you know, it, you've got to go out there and, like you said, be a little bit more humble in your accomplishments. Let them speak for themselves. They're already on your resume. They're already quantifiable. Um, you've already put qualitative statements that actually also show, along with the quantitative, that um, adds the value. You can dip, definitely demonstrate that within the organization. Um, so you don't need to go in there necessarily with all your 
you know, your pins on your lapel and everything else and your trinkets and stuff and your awards and, and those types of things that all of a sudden start showcasing as if, um, you know, th this is what I've done. Um, this is who I am. Because then you're automatically setting yourself up. There's a time and a place, right? I mean, if you're the, you know, and no offense to them because they are truly the greatest generation, but if you're the mall walker and you've got your, you know, I served in World War II in Korea and all your badges and stuff on your head at any mall around the U.S., then that's great, right? Like, I would I would buy each of them, you know, here's another quote for a free beer, right? I would buy them as many beers as they wanted to have with me and, and sit them down and, and talk to them. But not necessarily the right place when you're trying to transition and market yourself as whatever that new you is going to be, right? You know, Robert, you can speak to this perfectly, right? The, the going from a senior position in the military to an executive in a Fortune 50 company, that's a massive transition. And you can almost, you know, pride before the fall, you can do yourself so many disservices just by doing something stupid that is tr truly six inches forward and then 12 steps back every time you kind of muck up, right? You know, every every time that you make a career change, you're having to um, reinvent yourself. Um, so this is, again, you know, we talked about it, and I mentioned it uh, during the last podcast about not a one and done. You're ob honestly always reinventing yourself and making sure that your personal brand is solid and that you're, you're um, being humble and you're presenting yourself in the best light. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that one of the things we talk about it again is that there's a lot of pride that comes along with that um, for what you've accomplished within the military and it was great and you may very well run across others in the private sector within the the company uh, that you're working for maybe your supervisor or whatever that you end up through conversation realizing that they have shared um, the same experiences maybe in the same branch or another branch um, as any one of us who would attest that's come off of active duty, um, you become instant, you know, you bond instantly with veterans. And it doesn't really matter what branch or whatever. You have that instant connection. Well, then that's the time you can talk about pride of maybe the units that you served in, the things that you accomplished and such that you can really share in because they're going to have similar things that they can talk about. It goes back to, Scott, what you said. Is there's a place and a time for it. Well, and, you know, just realize, again, again, right, in the military, we always understand situational awareness and understand your operational environment. Um, and for the five people in the world that have bought my book, they'll see that I quote that quite often, right? So uh, three of them are on the screen with me right now. So, um, But understanding situational awareness and uh, the operational environment is key. And when you go into a corporate environment, you know, the I, I read recently that the average law school graduate only makes sixty to seventy thousand dollars US a year. And yet we think that, you know, a ten year two pumps to Iraq or a couple pumps to Afghanistan career in SOF or a twenty year career as a Marine and, and the lessons learned are gonna equate to a law degree. And in reality, that's not how a lot of organizations and corporations. So you have to, you can't just expect them to say, oh, well, he or she is retired from the military after 20 years, so they, they are equal to X. You have to prove that. You have to put one foot in front of the other, just like you would in the military, and make your case for why you should make that much. And granted, you're going to know probably infinitely more than that recently graduated lawyer. However, you have to prove that to an environment that doesn't understand your capabilities or your skill sets. You know, because Scott, I think, when I go ahead, I, Scott, I think one one thing um, that that kind of sets us apart too is is a lot of guys are getting out of the army or out of the services without an education, and you just threw some some good numbers up there about a, a entry level lawyer making sixty thousand dollars a year, and, and I know that a 
an 18 series guy with, with a couple of trips to Afghanistan uh, has a lot of experience that he has to offer in, in, in terms of relatable skills. But what he doesn't have is that sheepskin that gets him maybe in the door to get an interview. And uh, uh, Robert and I had a great conversation on this a couple of days ago that, you know, so many of the guys don't invest in their own education uh, to set themselves up maybe for that initial uh, entry when they get out of, out of the military. When I got out, I was retiring and I went through the transition classes and I had said in the last podcast, I didn't ask enough questions. And so it was very hard for me to make a resume that made me sound like I was more experienced than I was on paper. Like I knew I was in real life, but I couldn't put it on paper. I struggled with that. And I ended up taking an entry level job at a government contractor so I could get myself in the door. And once I've been able to prove that I'm worth a little bit more, I've been promoted a few times. And last year I asked my boss, when can I get promoted again? What do I got to do? And he said, holy crap, you've been promoted three times in eight years. Isn't that enough? And I was like, no, because I got promoted a whole bunch of times in the Marine Corps. I want to keep going. And he was just like, oh my gosh. So I took an entry level that the point of this was that I took the entry level job so I could get in the door and I did not make a lot of money. But once I was able to show my worth, then the promotions came quickly. I would tell you that that's actually, um, you know, a lot of folks I've seen come off active duty and are not able to do the same thing you did, Susan. Maybe it's because of the organization that you belong to, but I would say that that's um, an exception rather than the norm. Um, I've known a lot of folks that actually went out, didn't have their education, as Mike was talking about, um, took an, a, a job right out of active duty and in case in one case it was somebody that I know who spent uh, 20 years in the infantry um, had opportunities and his last assignments to be able to do that and, and get his education chose not to and went into entry-level positions and once he got his degree they didn't see the value they still seen that individual the degree itself wasn't something that they were looking for for him to attain for him to move to the next level in their mind he was still the same person but now with a degree so i used to teach people at times in the private sector that sometimes you have to leave to go and go away to come back and what I meant by that was you have to go away, get promoted somewhere else because of the education or because of your experience, and then you're able to come back in the door as somebody else. Much like if you came in and you were the parking attendant and now all of a sudden you may have a master's degree in business and you have 12 years of experience, they still see you as a 17-year-old kid parking cars or doing whatever. They never see you as the um, you know, leader or executive. And, and you know, going back to Mike's uh, point of what he talked about in our conversation, um, you know, we both talked about how long it took us to get our uh, bachelor's degree. I mean, it took me eight years to get my bachelor's degree in the military because you can't do it at the time that you want to, but you've got to be committed to something like that. But you have to be committed to something like that. And again, I gave myself enough runway, and we talk about this as well a lot, to be able to ensure that when I wanted to make that leap, that I was... I had the skills, I had the experience, and I had the education to go with it to give me the full package. And, and it's something, you know, that Mike, I know you're working on your master's degree. I was very fortunate in my last assignment to be able to do that, and not everybody's able to do those types of things. But, you know, even if you take one class a semester or something, you could really make a lot of headway that way. You know, I, I think that's what I've tried to sell to guys that have worked for me in the past is, is as much time as we, we, we spend at work and as much as time as, as we spend on, on all the things that we declare important to us, um, 
PT probably being the most important one. But uh, you could carve out an hour or two a day to do one class at a time. And the way the the way these classes are run now, uh, guys can be deployed and they can they can link in directly to an institution uh, and take one class at a time over the internet uh, with a lot of interaction with students. Uh, and I, I think honestly, they get a lot, particularly the younger students, they get a lot out of our experiences, and that that adds to the class. I ended up interacting with professors more than students back and forth, just simply because I thought I had something to offer. Uh, and I still have some of those relationships that I, I bounce ideas off of people that have, I've taken their classes in the past. But, but you're right, Robert. I, I think that, you know, it's so important that, um, and, and what we talked about the other day, I found myself in a position uh, where I was, I was working, um, you know, shoulder to shoulder with, with a bunch of guys who were CGSC grads and SAMS grads. And as SAMS is a school for advanced military studies, they come out of that with two master's degrees. And it was very difficult. And I, I just had my bachelor's. I just completed it. But I was, I was a competent writer. Um, but it was difficult to, to be able to write at the level with, with those guys. So they offered me a lot of help. They knew that I was willing to put in the effort. Um, but, but I think that kind of r- relating that to people on the outside world, if you're trying to market yourself for, for six-figure incomes um, and you're competing with people who have – years of education and experience and you, you've got people with master's degrees, man, you got to be able to compete with them. You got to be able to write with them. Uh, you got to be able to hold your own. And I think without an education, if you're trying to, I mean, to go to, to kind of circle back to, to the numbers Scott was talking about earlier, if you're, if you're hanging numbers up on, on a job and you're not willing to take that entry level uh, position, man, you've got to have, you've got to have quite a bit of education to make yourself competitive. Well, yeah. Go ahead, Robert. Now, you know, it goes back to marketing yourself and your personal brand, I, you know, and I think that I found something that was kind of interesting, too, and that's that over 30% of those that are separating from active duty find employment within the four, first 45 to 60 days. So you've got to have a plan of attack here. Not only do you have to have, you know, an outstanding resume that captures somebody within the first three to five, you know, seconds of looking at your resume, you've got to be competitive with who you believe to be the peer group that you're applying for within the position, and you've got to make sure that you have enough savings to be able to sustain you for that period of time is too because it, it may not be that you walk out the door and you land that job right away or that you get it before you even leave active duty while you're on terminal leave um, it, it may be that you have to either accept a position at a entry level or that you have to um, be prepared for the worst case scenario that you might might be in a transitional period for you know three months six months at a time now, One of the things I'll, that cracks me up. Go ahead, Mike. No, I'll go ahead. this down a rabbit hole for a second, uh, Robert, because you, you brought up the finance aspect of it. And that's probably the first thing that I counsel guys on uh, as they're going into transition is, is they've got to, as, as, as much possible, retire debt-free or, or leave the military debt-free. You know, we spend so much time amassing you know, mortgages and things because we have guaranteed income that nobody else in, in the private sector has. Uh, but if if they if they if they exit the military that way, man, they're tied to a number uh, instead of being a little bit more mobile to to look at what where they find their meaning and what they really want to p- pursue in their passion. So, and you've got a great blog post on the Mentors for Military site about exactly that building the nest egg. Um, it's in your book. I think that that's something that's that's almost you know as important as what we're talking about today. And and maybe it's the pride aspect of it. 
Thank it you. is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really believe that it's a it's a pride p- uh, piece of it. I mean, a lot of guys are very proudful. They believe, uh, when I say guys, I'm saying both female soldiers and, and uh, female military people as well, is that, you know, they, they, they go into it um, believing that they do have something. And, and, you know, quite frankly, there probably is a sense of entitlement that's here. Um, that, that they believe that, okay, well, I went off and served my country, so uh, what's in it for me now? What are you guys going to bring to the table for me? And it's almost as though they think they're going to go to these job fairs and they're going to set up their own table and booth with their own pictures and awards and everything sitting there. And the, you know, and now they're going to say, okay, everybody who's interested in hiring me, come to my table and um, you know, I'll have my copy of my resume here and you can tell me what you're going to pay me and what and if position. You're worthy, is, I'll give it to you. And if you're worthy, I'll give it to you. Yeah. Well, you know, for a lot well, of soft guys, that, that happens. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it does. It, I mean, there are there are those that have gone before us that do look back into the regiment as as guys are getting out, um, and they they we are we're sought after for specific types of roles. So I, I think that something kind of perpetuates that that mentality that you know people see guys getting out and there's offers laid out for them. Um, so I, I think I, I think that somewhere in our culture that we've created that ourselves. I'm sorry to cut you I off. I agree. No, no, you, you didn't at all. But I, I was going to say this exact same thing, right? That we've created a culture because of the past 15 years at war or whatever, that the entire military is is a holistic society thinks that. I'm just going to show them my MOS. If I show my MOS in the years that I was in, they will by default know that, oh, crap, Scarlett, Scott was a Charlie and a Fox, and he did this and that. So he's got to be worth X number of dollars. And because we're so used to You've mentioned in previous shows, Mike, and, and here I am quoting you again. Uh, we're so used to doing more with less all the time and being that jack of all masters and none mentality, right? Like we'll just figure it out when we have time and, and do it. That's not how civilian companies work. They want, you know, they they truly like that expert phrase. They want that person round. <laughs> Susan's shaking her head, so I think I think she's about to cut me off and agree with me. But um, they want that round peg in the round hole that says you are X, you do X. Right, yes. Susan? Yes. And so, like, I'm always still, after all the time that I've been retired, always see the gray area of, of the production floor that where things need to get done. And so I'm like, screw it, I'll just do it myself. And I'm always stopped. Nope, you can't do that. That's not your job. And I'm like, I know, but I have time right now. It's okay. I, you know, I can still get my work done. Nope, that's not your job. You don't do that. You go sit down and do your job. That's one of the hardest things I actually found, by the way, uh, separating and transitioning from the military was that, um, you know, we do kind of have that. Let's get it done no matter what it takes. And if I have to pick up the rifle and go do it myself, I will kind of mentality. And um, out there, there's a certain level of expectation or entitlement that even comes with positions and roles that, no, 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 you're not supposed to do that. That is the reason why you are sitting where you are, that, you know, we have people that are doing that. And, and in some cases, um, although you feel like, well, I, I'm trying to show that um, I can relate, the downside is is that um, you may also be demonstrating that you're not executive caliber or senior leadership caliber or whatever as well because um, you don't know how to delegate, even though you do, even though you know how to delegate. We had to do it all the time within the military. But there was, again, you start building these perceptions. You just got to be very cognizant and aware of your surroundings and the new environment that you're going into. Don't rush into it, is what I'm saying. 
No, it, it, exactly. And, you know, Ryan's making some great points in the, in the chat room as well, talking exit strategies and everything else. But, and I'll sum up the pride portion because we're at the half hour mark and say, you know, check your ego, man. Those three little letters, E-G-O, are, are your own worst enemy and they're, they're not going to do you any favors. So check your ego at the door and understand that sometimes you just got to play the game to draw the paycheck, right? And, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but if life's, if life's a game, then you got to learn how to play it. So, you know, when we start looking at uh, prejudice, there's already going to be those, uh, you know, preconceived opinions out there. Uh, we talked about last week about um, officers versus enlisted, uh, those with education being obviously those that are officers, right? Because that's uh, how you become an officer is you have to already have a degree. Um, and we talked about how um, last week that that's not necessarily always the case and that there are a lot of enlisted that either achieved uh, a bachelor's degree while they were in, or some of them even entered the military uh, with a degree. Um, and so, again, you're starting to fight those types of uh, prejudices that may be out there, um, how people evaluate you based on um, the stereotypes that are available, um, PTSD being one of them, or you know, everybody, you know, is in a combat situation, and I don't understand how that's going to, you know, flow into manufacturing or a transactional environment. Um, so prejudice is a big uh, piece of it that you have to constantly, again, evaluate, self-assess, and overcome. So let's start by defining it, right? Because I looked it up just because I'm a simpleton and I have to sometimes, but prejudice is defined on Webster's as a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. And one of the best stories that I've ever heard in my entire lifetime about prejudices as far as civilian and military translations and stuff is, again, my older brother, right, who, who I quote almost every, every podcast, and thank God he doesn't listen to these because they're not always flattering. But He's a, he's a West Pointer. He did his time in the first Gulf War as a you know 24th Met guy and then got out as a young captain and went to business school. And he graduated from the number three business school at the time with a you know master's degree in finance. I tell you all this because he's on Wall Street and he's talking about how well he placed in his class at University of Chicago, how he did this at West Point, how he did this and all these academic things. And eventually those guys would get to the point on his resume and go, you're, you're an airborne ranger? Like – and so he and I, you know, always argue that he wasn't an airborne ranger. He was a ranger qualified officer. But anyway, the interview would come to the point that you're an airborne ranger. And then he was said when, when the interview would, and I'm talking multi huge companies that we all know by, by name that are just in the news daily investment banking firms, et cetera, with millions in salary options to him. He would just lean back and cross his legs and go, Yep. And they would talk to him for 30 minutes about jumping out of planes and ranger school and this and that and whatever. So that, so the prejudice, it, it seems like a very pejorative word, but it's not. And they exist on both sides of the table. Ryan had a point earlier about as soon as he's in these master's classes of his own and they hear he's a Green Beret, they start trying to puff their own chests out and, and tell him how great they are and their achievements and everything else. And he doesn't look at life like they do as a contest, but prejudices are alive and well on both sides of the field. And you got to learn to navigate them or else, again, you're not going to be successful. Less is more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, and I don't mean to put the spotlight on you, Susan, but I'm sure that you even were surrounded with this within the military, let alone coming with the private sector with a military background. So it's kind of a double whammy in some cases, just based on, you know, the history of the military and that it's been predominantly for numbers of years. 
um, you know, male oriented. And, um, you know, we're not going to get into the changes that are happening. But I, I think that there is, a, again, a perception from the private sector of women, military, you're coming out. I don't get it. Uh, what what right. do you have to offer? Well, so like when I obviously when I was in the Marine Corps, um, I wasn't treated very well by male Marines because male Marines don't like women Marines. So when I got out um, and got this first job, I was amazed at how nice everyone was to me. And I kept asking, you know, like, what is going on? Like, why, you know, you don't have to be so nice to me. Like, I don't understand. And they were just like, oh, can we get you coffee? And I'm like, no, I, I can get my own coffee. And it was a, it, just a far departure from what I left. But the mistake that I made was that I kept saying, you know, I'm a Marine, I'm a big girl, I can take care of myself. And they eventually stopped asking and they stopped talking to me because I had come on too strong. Um, and so, like you said, you know, it's like I didn't check my ego at the door, but I think also at the time I didn't realize I had the ego because I was the only girl, I'm still the only girl in an organization like I was in the Marine Corps. Um, I sit in a, in a corner cubicle, so the only time people come talk to me is when they absolutely have to. And that whole um, relationship is my fault because when I started there, I came on too strong. So it's been, um, especially since I've been listening to your podcast, I've learned a lot about body language. So like that was, you know, like I put down the corners of the pages because it's something that I think I still struggle with and uh, have made some, some drastic changes in how I present myself just to my coworkers, even though I've worked with them for a long time and things have gone much smoother and better because of it. I wish I would have learned it a long time ago when I first started. So, Well, that's the second part of the prejudice definition is part two in Webster says harm or injury that results or may result from some action or judgment, right? So by, by having those walls up and by having those barriers, again, going back to communication barriers and body language and networking and, and everything else, all those things have repercussions down the road, though, that we may not identify at the time, but those prejudices are alive and well. So, so I guess we, we can start, right, just to show that we're somewhat prepared for the show today. You know, military to civilian prejudices, right? Um, belief that your way is the only way is a definite military to civilian prejudice because we have our – and Susan's shaking her head, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll with it. But rank has his privileges. Robert and I had a, an hour phone call yesterday, and we both got in our soapboxes about this old outdated notion of the nobility between the officer corps and the enlisted corps and yeah you know, mike and i spent world, how that's still probably 30 minutes uh, earlier in the week on monday talking about the exact same thing um absolutely i mean and before you go on i mean i don't want to get on my soapbox on this but i mean you so know up, it goes go this goes all the way back you know the difference between enlisted and officers goes back to the days of um europe and the uk um, and it was typically officers were those who had title and land and their sons uh, were given those same rights and were given the privileges of being an officer in the military. And those who were the peasants and the farmers and stuff became the enlisted folks. And unfortunately, um, you know, that carried all the way through to many wars, including those within the United States up until through the Civil War. And then after that, it started uh, coming more of let's throw bodies down range because when it started going to World War One and World War Two, we really needed uh, troops and a lot of enlisted soldiers end up being pilots and and those types of things. And it started changing a little bit of the dynamics. But I think you still see that within the private sector and as well within the enlisted force. 
An enlisted soldier can't do all that an officer does because of the limitations the military sets on it. Not because of capabilities necessary, necessarily, but it's because of the title and the rank. Um, you don't necessarily find that within the private sector so much because everybody has a place at the table in most organizations, uh, but you do start seeing those differences within the military, and those same understandings are, um, you know, are in prejudices are available within the private sector up to what an officer and what an enlisted can bring to the table. Whether it's a DOD contracted firm or it's an actual private se uh, sector corporation that looks for military personnel to come to their company. I'll give you a, a good example, uh, and we talked about this earlier, Robert, but um, I, I, get, I get job postings from a lot of different places, and I've seen postings even recently for combat advisors to go downrange uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan and one of the requirements is a master's degree. So, you know, tell me, as a, as a retired Green Beret, 24 years in a regiment, 30 years in the Army, what, uh, and what they're asking for is a CGSC grad, right? They're asking for a major. Um, tell me what a major brings to the table that, that somebody that's spent 25 years in the regiment, uh, really, who hasn't had all the staffing and everything, is, all of his work has been combat advising. So, and I, I, I can read through it and see what they're asking, but it, it kind of circles back to our earlier conversation that if, I man, if you know this and you're preparing for transition, you, you know, and you have something to offer, whether it's, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that, that specific DOD contractor type role, uh, man, you've got to have the education just to get the interview, just to be able to sell yourself uh, to get that position initially. But it goes back to the three R's as well in our show that we did and adaptability and such that you've got to know exactly where it is. Um, that you're going into in terms of a culture and an organization and whether or not the first thing they're going to ask you is what was your rank um, or, you know, they're, they're then trying to put you within a box. Um, and you know that, um, you know, so it, you, you just get again. What a great segue, Robert. It's as if there's prejudices from the civilian to the military as well. And one of those is, you know, even in the defense contracting world that like Mike said, they have to, delineate to such a degree that they don't want the knuckle dragger enlisted guys coming in so that they have to put these fake type you know certificates or awards or requirements onto that job description just to get the right successful candidate in there so the prejudices are well we don't we don't want a sergeant major he, he has sergeant in front of his word like that's an that's a non-commissioned officer they're they're knuckle draggers so you know when, when you and i say i'm mockingly right but Oh, he's a sergeant first class. He's got to be better than a master sergeant. Like a master sergeant isn't first class. So if there's a sergeant first class, he's clearly better. So, this, so the prejudices are alive and well, right? And they they suck. But I hear it all the time. And, and maybe it's because I'm, I'm currently residing in Australia. But they are alive and well. And and if it's not the knuckle dragger syndrome, it's that you're damaged or that you have PTSD. Like, oh my God, you've been to combat. Like, and there's almost this this sympathetic, you know, type of. I'm proud of that. I served my country. I did my thing. I'm not going to start crying on your shoulder or anything, but there's this kind of like they want to hug me because I'm a combat veteran or something. I'm going, you know, personal space, back up, please. But, And then, you know, they believe as well that we're going to show up with a high and tight haircut and knife hand everybody and start saying Roger and whoa all the time and wearing our Army PT shirt, you know, on podcasts and stuff. And then, I did. Yeah. I, that was me, actually. Uh, so, Mike, you had a comment. No, I, I just, you know, just what Scott was saying, it's it's – it's almost that they have a role for enlisted and a role for officer when you're looking at bringing guys out, even in the DOD contracting. And if you look at a lot of the, and not soft specific, 
uh, jobs that they have out there. But what do enlisted guys go and do? They run ranges. They do tank master gunnery. I mean, they're doing this in Saudi Arabia, doing this in Iraq. They do it everywhere. And those are the roles that some of them have allowed themselves to be put in. And, and if, if you're working higher levels on a staff, uh, well, those are guys with CGSE. Those are majors. Those are guys that have been company commanders and worked on a staff for the rest of their career. But I think that, that there are a lot of us who have, you know, uh, uh, we can be adaptable to a lot of those different roles. Certainly, those guys with master's degrees are drawing more money than the guys running rifle ranges teaching base, basic rifle marksmanship. So I, I think that the, the, the roles that they see for enlisted and also are definitely a prejudice. You know, and, and it, it still goes out within the private sector, and uh, I think I mentioned this on previous shows as well. I mean, we make out resumes or job descriptions, uh, not resumes, job descriptions, that I may go ahead and put a discriminator kind of in there that says, you know, no, I need somebody MBA preferred, because I get to thinking about the kind of person that I'm looking for within that role, and I want to make sure that they have uh, business accounting, business finance, um, you know, certain types of experience that they can bring to the table to counter the rest of the staff that's within my, um, you know, team or something of that nature to be able to carry themselves within a certain uh, way. Um, and, you know, depending upon whether I say that's a soft preferred or a hard preferred uh, to the hiring, I mean, to the uh, recruiter, uh, will make a difference as to whether or not they really count that as required within the scoring of how they weight it uh, when somebody gets the keywords and it hits them within the resume. So you start even doing that, even not even military coming into the uh, organization. I point that out because it can even happen to anybody coming in within organizations depending upon the job that they're applying for. Again, do your homework, study the environment that you're going into, um, the workspaces, the industry, uh, who your peer group is. And God, I know I say this like seven times during a podcast, but it's so important. If you think that you are going in at a certain level, you're in, you know, you feel like you should be there and such, then understand who that peer group is and what they're bringing to the table so that you can be competitive. Therefore, then there wouldn't be any uh, prejudices, you know, in, in that way anyway. Well, so, I mean, Ryan, again, you know, Mr. Mysterio in the chat room has a, a great point. And he's asking, is it wrong for a company to write up the job requirements like what we just talked about or to look for the specific type of person? Or is it wrong for a potential candidate not to take the initiative and make themselves marketable for the job they want? And my answer, you know, quickly trying to type in multitask was – they write the job requirements and descriptions like that because we lie on our resumes and we're not honest in what we can do and we're not self-aware and our ego gets in place, right? Like my, my resume should simply, in my opinion, right, should simply say like master of all, jack and none. Give me a problem, I'll solve it, you know, done. Email me at Scott at the Kinder Group and, and we can talk. But that's not translating those skills to that civilian organization, right? But that's the way a lot of not only soft guys, not just Green Berets or SEALs, but that's how a lot of people think in the military. Again, we're used to doing more with less. We're used to doing more than our civilian peers at the same age level or education level have even dreamed of doing. We've led more people and we actually know what the word lead means versus manage or some other civilian watered down translation of the word leading. Um, and, and we're there. So, so how do we overcome both our internal pride and the external pride of the agencies want to hire us or the companies want to hire us and then the prejudices that exist. Well, one, just adapt yourself and know what you need to be to give to that job. Are you applying for the right thing? Like going back to passion, what is your passion? You know, And, and again, 
Mike is a great example. He, he wants to be a teacher. And if you look back, you know, psychologically, every SF guy is indeed truly a teacher. So he's going to what his heart is in 24 years in the regiment, the community. But when you know what you're good at and what you want to do and you're self-aware and you check your ego, he's taking the right steps to get there. And that's amazing. It should be kind of a storyboard for the whole transition process, right? Well, you know, Sorry, even – I'm even... doing storyboards, you, so. Even when you're looking at though, from the educational standpoint, since you you know you brought that to the table, and or I actually brought that, and then you hit me back with it and stuff from uh, what was said in the chat room. But you know, when when you look at a a bachelor's degree, you're dealing, especially I'll use an example of business, you're dealing with more in accounting as debit credit. You're doing very basic accounting principles, is what you're learning. When you go for your master's in business, then you're learning more managerial finance. You're lear- learning more about, you know, the shareholder value aspects of it, how to actually, you know, do a lot of the tables and stuff, look at it from a three to five year strategy standpoint. Um, you're getting really deeply into the actual managerial finance, which is different than basic accounting. So again, the the master's degree Get, is is making it so that you're looking for somebody with that additional edge. You're looking for somebody with something um, that it is going to offer more than what maybe the basic expectation is. It is, again, a discriminator or a uh, identifier, maybe is a de- better word, or a way to um, market that position um, so that you can get the, the right fit. Sometimes that might be Six Sigma uh, lean training. Sometimes that might be, you know, project management, PMP schools that, you know, whatever the case may be, but you, you have to have those things in there. The thing is, is if you know, you're going for those jobs, then just do your homework. If it means that the majority of people that are applying for those are making or carrying a master's degree, then get a master's degree because that's not your competition. If it means that they've got PMP certification, get your PMP certification. You know, I mean, there's some real basics here that we're kind of covering as well um, to overcome we, the prejudices. You know, or, and we all know that, and we just again, we all know that, but somehow, some, some way during the transition process, it's like the lobotomy occurs, and we just forget anything that we learned in the military. Right? You don't show up to the Q course or Marine boot camp or Ranger school or anything, right? Airborne school, and just get handed a set of jump wings or the, you know, EGA, the Eagle Globe and Anchor, or you know, the SF tab or the Ranger tab or whatever, right? Like you actually have to put the right amount of work in to gain those things that, that you cherish and that you're after, right? Like even sapper school, right? You got to go and like walk through the lanes and do the whole thing and become an earned a sapper tab. So we, we know that in the military world and we embrace it and we, we thrive on it. And yet we transition and we leave the military and all of a sudden it's this expectation and this pride that, well, the world owes me. So they should give me a hundred thousand dollars a year because I have a shitty resume and I showed up to do the interview with all the stickers in the back of my car. You guys all know my my standpoint on the transition assistance program, at least from my experience. But I don't think the transition assistance program does anything to prepare you uh, for the things that Scott's talking about. But our career has prepared us for that. I mean, look at every time we go on a mission, every time we go on a deployment, we do extensive pre-mission training. We do. We all do it. It's required to do it. There, in soft, there are specific courses in schools that we take annually just to be eligible to deploy. So I, I think that we're accustomed to that. Uh, from our own professional uh, development, but we don't apply that, or a lot of us, uh, we see guys that don't apply that as they're transitioning, and, and they're expecting just what, what Scott said is, you know, 
almost an entitlement that, that I've done all this already. Now I, I should I should enter the next organization at a certain level without doing all that that pre-mission training to get there. Due diligence. Do your due diligence. Do your homework. Investigate where you are within the marketplace. Understand how much lead time it's going to take to get you where you want to be. Understand, you know, size up your competition. I mean, again, Mike, you're bringing up good points. These are things that you do all the time when you're evaluating the uh, opposing forces and whether or not that are you combat ready are, are have you understood where your team is at in uh, preparedness are you understanding what the opposition has done to prepare for you um ha- have you uh, made yourself uh, better uh to be able to be successful in the end game I, 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 there's no difference here these are these are skills and things that you've learned throughout your whole career, uh, career but for some reason um, we get a brain fart here about you know 12 months out and we all of a sudden go into I'm getting out mode and um, we we don't we tune out everything else and, and we don't get into it well enough and, and Susan I'm curious if you had a different experience having gone through you know we talk about the what used to be called the Army and Career and Alumni Program, but that's our TAP, our Transition Assistance Program. But what was, you know, your kind of experience and preparedness coming off uh, the Marine Corps? Oh, our, our TAMP, the, at the time they were called TAMP classes, Transition Assistance, something, something. They sucked. They were terrible. And they, they did not prepare us for anything. And so I really felt lost. And so when I came to Ohio, because... My husband got a job here, and I didn't know anyone here and didn't have any family here, which is why I'd asked some of the questions in the previous podcast, you know, being shy by nature, and I'm always the last person to speak in a crowd, I really struggled, and I stayed home for a year before I ever got a job because I seriously couldn't figure out what it was I wanted to do. Um, it took a fellow recon Marine to tell me that my resume sucked, so I had to learn very hard lessons. I didn't ask questions. I didn't do my research. I really did not know what I wanted to do when I retired. So I'm the perfect example of what not to do. Yeah. I mean, well, you know what? You Actually, it's exactly what Mike wrote. It's exactly why I wrote the book. It's, ex- I mean, it, unfortunately, we keep repeating this. Um, and, and you, you know, you can't really, as Mike pointed out, even in previous podcasts, when we talked about the subject, his first time that he was on the show is that you can't blame anybody but yourself. You've got to do the work ahead of time and understand the amount of runway that's necessary in order to be successful. And if you wait for somebody else to decide your future, well, then you're going to live it. Whatever their future is, they decided for you. And and you've got to be prepared then for that. Um, so, you and know. hence the misery, right? That's where we, we don't think that we're doing that, but we're doing exactly that. When we take these jobs, we're either unqualified for or overqualified for or mismatched for or just going to be miserable because you've you've poorly selected right going back to r3 and all that other stuff from previous shows in a pure blatant attempt to get people to listen to past podcasts but going back to all those previous shows to get people to select the right thing identify your passion and do the right you know job in your future so that you're not wanting to suck start your 45 at the end of the day and you know i'm not making fun of suicide but you can't be that miserable in your life and in your work and and how many people took a job for the salary and not anything else oh too many anything else too many they don't take anything else into consideration if you're driven by the almighty dollar you know god go ahead i want to tell you about i had an interview a few months after i came back from lebanon i still had plenty of runway to figure out what I wanted to do. Actually, a company had, had 
recruited me and reached out to me to manage a program at Guantanamo Bay. And uh, the, the guy that was conducting the interview was retired Navy uh, Command Master Chief. And, and I started talking to him about the things that I was passionate about, the things that I wanted to do. And, and, and he was talking about his program and how he got out of the Navy and went right into a similar program and was completely lost. What a great conversation. Um, I, I couldn't have had a better first interview uh, to have a guy who was retired E9 counsel me on really determining what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And I, and I, I used to joke around a lot. I hadn't decided what I wanted to be when I grew up. I, I was still on my summer job after high school. That lasted a long time and made a very, very fun career for me. But this guy sat me down and talked to me about, look, man, I'll give you this job if you want it. But I don't think you want it. And all the things you guys have been talking about are, are exactly what he laid out there. I didn't have the PMP. You know, I didn't know the, the industry language. And, and he kind of explained that, you're going to spend the first six months in position learning how we do things. And in six months from now, you'll be, you'll be effective. But it's going to be painful. And I just don't think that's what you want to do. And that he kind of helped steer me toward you know, a, a different avenue, which is what I ended up selecting. That was just an interesting story to go along with what you guys were no, talking about. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's why a lot of times um, even rolling into consulting positions can be really good because it can give you the ability to maybe to – um, take your education, take your experience, and apply those to private sector industries that are either looking at, you know, making changes internally um, through certain, um, you know, maybe it, it's from a HR perspective, or maybe it's from a business process perspective, or whatever it is. It gives you clear insight into different organizations, industries, the way they handle, the way they communicate. Sitting in those meetings and those um, those environments where people are talking a different language, and all of a sudden you start realizing that um you know wow i'm like a fish out of water here i really need to catch up I, you know and i found something that was really interesting too is that um women veterans have a higher percentage rate of employment um than those of their their male counterparts as well as uh the greater higher percentage of uh female veterans already are exiting active duty with the college education now it could be because of the you know, the combat arms, which that may now start changing some of that. But I found that very interesting that um, the percentage of rate of employment was much different. It's because I have hair. I don't have a short <laughs> haircut and I don't have a beard. Hey, we have hair. <laughs> plenty of hair right on my chin. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I thought that, uh, you know, again, it was one of those things where um, it are, are you – better preparing? Uh, is there more opportunity? What is the reason behind that? And I, I don't know. So I'm asking I, the I, question. I think, yeah. I think there's more opportunity for women who sit at desks like myself to go to college. I mean, I had a bachelor's degree before I retired. Um, I could have had more than a bachelor's degree before I retired, but I was lazy. And I know that several of my fellow admin chiefs had master's, uh, master's degrees before they retired. So I think it's, it's job dependent. You know, if you sit at a desk, you're going to have a lot more time to go to school, obviously, and that's what I did in the Marine Corps was sat at the desk. So I, th I think, too, even when – I mean, I served 12 years in an infantry battalion. I went to the infantry as a corporal, and I left a gunny. And long before the Marine Corps would ever admit that they had women in, in the combat arms units, not as grunts but as support people, um, 
I still went to the field and did all of that. But when you go to the field, you're still sitting next to a tree waiting for something to happen. So I still had more time to do my classwork. It did take me a longer to get a bachelor's degree. I certainly didn't do it in four years. It probably took me about eight or nine, but I still had time to do it because of my MOS. Yeah, I, and I think that's the case for many. Um, you know that it certainly catches up with you. I think with the um, the internet the way it is now, and the ability for you to get your online education, um, and that you can take classes maybe a little bit uh, uh, at a slower pace because a lot of the universities are catering to veterans and understand that that's a, a market that they wanted to get into. Um, so you know, again, back in the day when I I spent the eight years getting the bachelor's degree, it's because the internet was not available for um, us to go into. You actually had to physically sit in a classroom, listen to an instructor, and read a book. So, you know, it was a little bit different uh, back in those days, and I'm showing my age because of that. But I think, too, though, it it, it actually um, caused me to have to work that much harder uh, in uh, reaching a goal where, you know, I was going to class and each of us had to do this. And I'm not trying to put the highlight on me and pat myself on the back here, but you've got to set that runway out there. And for me, I knew that that's what I wanted to attain. And that meant I had to spend two to three nights a week. And that meant I also had to spend my weekends. And it was something I had to do for eight years. And it was an understand, you know, an understanding that, um, you know, if I was out in the field or something of that nature, then I wasn't able to go to class. Thankfully, my professor knew that. I'd have friends that were in MOSs or jobs that uh, could share with me and give me notes that of what they took. And, you know, I, I, it's part of the reason why it took me so long, because sometimes you had to drop, sometimes you weren't able to complete it. It really just goes back to um, perseverance, uh, understanding what your goals and objectives are, uh, where it is that you want to be as a, as a goal ahead of time, and go and get it. Uh, but make sure you're prepared in the process. I mean, I can't imagine the pain of setting all those letters and blocks in a printing press to print out your papers and stuff for your college, how, and then rubbing the ink. That must have been a nightmare. Like yeah. I'm trying to wrap my head around it right now. But. The paper did smell good, though, with the little uh, mimeograph machines and stuff that they squirted the stuff on. And uh, no, all right, Scott. Uh, so, <laughs> wow. Well, you should see the comments in the chat rooms asking if you were Custer's platoon sergeant. So <laughs> I, was, I was trying to be nice in comparison, but while watching my language, just to make sure everybody knows. Yeah, but I mean, you know, again, it, it goes back to making sure that you're prepared and uh, doing the things that you need to do to set apart uh, or to overcome the prejudices that you're going to be walking into and, you know, and, and making sure that um, you have a good personal brand put forward um that somebody can go out there and uh, see and um you know get to know a little bit better who is scott kinder i mean um they, they want to know that and sometimes the resume is just not enough these days to be able to figure that out no uh, but i mean i think to overcome prejudices and, and you talked about communication robert is is simply you know communicating and over communicating and you know at times addressing those prejudices when they occur and making sure that you communicate early consistently and constantly so that you're you're identifying and battling those while identifying where your true prejudices are as well or not prejudices but where your passions are as well because if you're not communicating that then people aren't going to try and help you and people aren't going to understand what you're trying to to achieve and then frustrations arise on both levels you know you might even feel some uh, of the same thing uh, from your peers within the military in sharing what your plans are after separation um 
they, they may not think that you're going to be able to achieve the goals that you want to achieve. And um, so you've got to go out there and overcome those as well. Um, you know, everything that you do is kind of a, a little battle uh, within itself. Um, and having, you know, being prepared, understanding what you're up against, um, you, you just we just can't say it enough. Uh, well, far too often we think that we're inventing the wheel, and you're, you're not. People have gone before you and done the things that you're trying to do. Pick their brains, get that information from them, get that data that you need, and then be flexible and adapt your style and what you need to accomplish that goal and that mission, right? So if you're, if you're inflexible and you don't communicate and you don't let anybody else know what you want to do, then how do you expect to, to accomplish that? It's never going to work. No, I keep saying ask questions. You got to ask. There's no such thing as a bad question, wrong question, and there's no such thing as too many questions. I learned the hard way. And I, I don't think there's wrong with, with taking that entry-level job. I, I think, yeah. you know, you're, you're trying to get into a completely new industry. How would we feel? Let, let's just look at it from a team guy perspective, right? How would we feel if the new guy showed up on a team and said, hey, I'm going to be the team short? You don't know how many guys I, I looked at on the stage that were coming across for uh, in the Q course who were E7s and senior E7s for what we allow guys into the course – who would be eligible for Master Sergeant a year or two later, that I looked those guys in the eye and I said, hey, there's no way that you're going to be prepared to be a team sergeant if you're promoted. You need six, eight years on a team, minimum, before you're going to be prepared. So why don't we look at it from that perspective? As we're going in, let's let's do our due diligence, let's take the entry-level job, and let's you know do the best that we can at the job that we're given. And yeah, 10 years from now, we want to be somewhere else, but the job you have right now is the one you put 100% into. And I think if we approach everything the way we've done our careers, that, you know, those those promotions, like with you, Susan, they're, they're going to come. Exactly. I mean, it's a great story. What Susan said, she's got three promotions quickly and more are coming, right? Because you could tell them, well, I've only gotten three p- promotions, but I took a job five steps lower than what I should have been. So until I'm at promotion number six, I'm still going to fight for it. Yeah, I mean, again, you have to do your research to find out how organizations treat that uh, because I found that that sometimes is not always the norm. Uh, It might be the exception, but um, there's certainly nothing wrong with stepping stone type of positions and roles. You have to be able to figure it out. And for me, it was taking a lot less pay being a consultant and um, working for a company to be able to show my value as a consultant uh, but it also gave me insight into the industry, into the specific company, and it led to a position within it as well. So it would have been the same thing had I gone in to work for this company because in terms of um, what I was making and all those types of things, it was far less than what I was uh, – or equal to maybe less uh, or around what I was making on active duty. But that then enabled me to move into a more senior role once I roll within the company. Um, it's it, it's really about showing your value. If you've got the right network within the organization, and that never ends, when you come in within an organization, you automatically have to start seeking mentors and developing a network internally, just as well as you did when you were outside or in the military externally. You've got to do the same thing because they're the people that's going to be uh, behind you 100% in getting those promotions and moving through. And Susan, you were very fortunate in having somebody that understood you, helped you kind of come to the organization in the first place, and then seen the value and watch your growth throughout that uh, as you begin to learn within the organization and exceed a lot of the folks that were already within there. Therefore, your promotions came 
uh, that much earlier. Yep. And I tell people all the time, don't be lazy. Use your GI Bill, use your tuition assistance, and use your post-9-11 GI Bill. Because I used all of that, and that's how I got to where I'm at. Well, I'm glad you said the word lazy, because otherwise I'd be accused of being mean yet again or speaking my mind. But it's, it's a great word, and it just encompasses all the inadequacies of who we are and where we end up because because we're lazy think back in the early part of today's show mike said that you know he's counseling people to get educated and to save and to retire debt free and to do us those things only don't happen because you didn't do it you chose other things you chose to be a gym rat versus getting your your bachelor's degree and those are they're ugly truths right and i'm not trying to put a pejorative ending on today's show but just don't be lazy. And when you're transitioning and looking for a career, that's definitely, definitely, definitely not the time to start being lazy. Well, it goes back to our initial discussion about pride. You've got to leave it your pride. You got to leave your pride at the door, and you've got to understand that you're coming into a new environment. Um, don't come with a sense of entitlement and walk out there and feel like you know somebody owes you something, and that your rank or position or skills and experience is automatically going to be a qualifier for a position at a certain level with a certain title. Well, um, Randy just said in the chat room, sorry, Robert, but he just said in the Army he was a chief of police, and he got out of the Army, and he had to start off as a street cop in, in the civilian world. So expectation management, I mean, that's a perfect encapsulation of what we're trying to, to address and talk about today. But those are the things that are not taught necessarily within a transition assistance program or an ACAP, or they're not taught within the military because a lot of the people in the military are focused on the military. They're not focused on the private sector. So again, um, I, I, you know, it's one of the things I enjoy about doing what we're doing here and what we're doing at Mentors for Military, but it's really about trying to get that education and understanding that um, what you have to do may take longer than what you're thinking. And so you don't want to rush the decision. And yet if you do rush the decision, the decision, then you need to understand your runway just got a heck of a lot shorter. So that means you've got to have more things prepared um, or psychologically prepared for what's about to happen to you, if nothing else, uh, because it might be a psychological blow. I, I'm, I'm sure there's quite a few people that walk out the door um, as Randy was talking about, that weren't prepared to walk out there and be the street cop. They were thinking, man, I can go out there and be a at least a sergeant in the police force and maybe even go to detec uh, detective right away or something. And next thing you know, uh, they're, they're out there, you know, walking the beat and, you know, just like everybody else, it starts out right out of the academy. But I don't want to open up a whole other can of worms, right? But it also happens the exact opposite way. When you are that E-4 specialist Army or Marine cook and you've never done anything except work in a chow hall or a mess facility and all of a sudden you get out and you're going to pitch your own restaurant on Shark Tank and talk about all your experiences cooking and, and being a chef, right? Like just, again, that's ego. That's, that's just a, a pride and abilities that, frankly, you don't have. But it goes back to what you're saying about expectation management. And, you know, that's something that the transition assistance program does not do very well. You know, if you go in and you say, I want a job at this level and this is my current level of experience in the military and here's my resume, they'll help you tailor that resume to appeal to that level of job, whether you should have it or not. Uh, they don't do a very good job of, of, of really doing what you just said, Scott, is expectation management. I think something this podcast is doing for the force right now. Well, it's, it's something that I, I write about a lot and, and for the 
four people globally who've read my book, they'll, they'll tell you, right, that I hate the checkbox mentality and the checklist mentality. Five people, sorry, I forgot I sold an extra copy. Um, the checklist mentality is horrific, right? But when you go to a, a program like TAP and, and you say, I really want to be an executive chef, and they go, here's my database and here's the terms for executive chef, and I'll just plug all these into your resume, and then you think that you're entitled from that because you've just had your opinions validated by a monkey that's sitting there working a keyboard at the transition assistance program, then you leave and you're sending out these resumes and it's horrific. Right? Well, wait, I mean, wait. There's a lot of people that do come in with that pride that walk in the door and they're not going to listen to anybody tell them that they're not an executive chef or they're not whatever they believe it to be because that's what they who they believe they are. So some people, uh, unfortunately, need a fist knocked upside their head and the dose of reality that it's not going to be that way. And the best people to do that are, are the people like Mike had that reviewed his resume after he came back that said, you know what, this resume is just not going to get it. Somebody has to give them the hard truth and it's got to be somebody they believe within confidence um, is a good mentor or somebody that they believe uh, understands them and, and what they've done. Well, experience and the voice of reason matter, right? I mean, yeah. my 12-year-old thinks that after a soccer match, he doesn't stink and need a shower. I tell him as a voice of experience and reason that he does indeed stink and need a shower. So you got to help those people that aren't capable of helping themselves. And, and sometimes, you know, the, the truth hurts, right? Like I'm not trying to be Mr. Negative on the, on the podcast all the time. But I, I've learned, like, like I said, you know, if anybody wants examples of things that they've done wrong in their life, I've got a gazillion of them. I could tell you stories all day long. Again, just email me. So I don't say this out of my own point of pride. I'm not saying, you know, like I've never done wrong. But to wrap it up, just understand who you are and, and what you're actually truly capable of and then fight like hell to get it because that's the only way it's going to work. Absolutely. So, you know, in kind of a summary of what we've been talking about in the pride and prejudice, the pride was really about a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievement achievements. And we talked about some of those uh, examples of how that's been done. Um, some of the ways in which you've got to understand uh, the marketplace and how you fit in. And then, of course, the prejudices that go out there and um, how the uh, private sector or the civilian community is going to be viewing your military experience um, and their pre conceived opinion uh, that's not really based on any type of uh, fact or actual experience. Um, so you want to make sure that you don't walk out with a sense of entitlement, um, that you do your homework, that you allow enough runway to make sure uh, that you're successful when the time does come, and that you size up your peers and the industry and the types of positions that you're going into, but realize when all that is done, said and done, you still may walk out the door and take a position that's much lower than what your expectations were, because you need to have uh, more than what you think you have currently today. And a lot of that may be how you walk, talk, and carry yourself. Um, you know, you got to make sure that you understand the lingo and how to communicate within that space and stuff. And that takes a little bit of time. Even if you're going from one career change to another and you're already a veteran at this point, we're not just talking about transition from the military. Some cases we're talking about just career changes in general. So um, take all of that in and make sure that you're doing enough preparation and planning to be successful in the end. Um, you know, be sure to join us here on Sunday evening. We're going to be doing um, another podcast at nine o'clock Eastern time and uh, join us in the Mixler uh, chat room. It's MIXLR.com so that you can 
chat with us live there. We en- enjoy uh, the interaction that goes uh, on in that place. And, and of course, uh, we as you probably heard during this podcast, we bring it to the show. Be sure to check out the mentorsformilitary.com website. There's a lot of good information on blogs and um, uh, the rest of the podcasts are out there as well. Uh, rate us out there on iTunes. Uh, continue doing that and giving us uh, your rating on how well you think the podcast show is. Uh, For Mike, for Scott, and for Susan, you guys have a great night. I'm Robert Gowan. Thank you so much.